This is the Becoming Man podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Melke, here with co-host Marshall McElhaney. Integrating our knowledge and experience as family therapists, husbands, fathers, and men, we explore a wide range of topics from a masculine perspective, including mental health, relationships, fatherhood, and meaning-making in today's ever-evolving world. Thank you for listening, and welcome to the show. How you doing, Marshall? I'm well, Anthony. It's very weird not to hear the intro music. Sorry. It it gets me it gets me in the in the right s- mindset to do the intro. I feel like I'm just talking into empty space talking, right talking now. Blindly right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's an exciting day today. We've got a guest, Dr. Scott Eilers. Said that right? You said that yes. right. Excellent. Well done. Um, Scott, just so you know, I'll probably have to keep the mic pretty close. Um, you have a louder voice than me, but uh, yeah, often I don't keep it close enough. So anyway, uh, Scott is a clinical psychologist here in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, um, specializing in eating disorders and trauma, uh, but kind of working with anyone now mm-hmm. for the Mercy Hospital System. Is that yeah, right? Mercy yeah, Mercy Medical Center, Mercy, Mercy Family Counseling. Center. Mm-hmm. Cool. And author of the book for When Everything's Burning. Um which we'll get into today as well. I just finished it today, so I'm really excited to talk about it. Uh, but before we do that, we have to talk about something even more interesting. Right before we started recording. <laughs> oh, and Family Man, of course. I uh, I was asking Scott for a That's run. That's not the one you were talking uh, about. No, no, no. no. <laughs> I was asking Scott for a rundown of interesting facts that he'd want to include in uh, the intro. And uh, he just slipped in there right before we pushed record, almost pro-fisherman. Mm-hmm. And that psychology was your second choice. I think that's a great place to start. I'm better at fishing than at psychology. <laughs> Says a doctor of psychology. <laughs> right. We need to hear some more. <laughs> unofficially, unofficially won my first fishing tournament at age six. Wow. I say unofficially because I was not old enough to enter nor drive a boat. So what I did was I basically I basically invented paddleboarding. And I should have mentioned that too. Stand up paddleboarding. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know how very, that's like a thing. Very now? lucrative. Yeah. So my uncle was really into uh, windsurfing. Cool. Do you know a windsurfing board is a paddleboard with, with a sail. sail on it? Yeah. And I took the sail off, therefore paddleboard. <laughs> and so that's awesome. age six. I go out onto the lake on my sailless windsurfing board. So we need to set the scene a little bit, Scott. You were telling me you grew up in northern Minnesota. Correct. Yeah. So this is up there. This is way up there. Way yeah. up there. Almost Canada. Almost Canada. Yeah. Like the woods, wild country, all that. Hibbing, Minnesota. Yeah. Home of Bob Dylan. Exactly. Birthplace of Bob Dylan. <laughs> he wasn't yeah. there. Though. He like wasn't there. It's in Minnesota. Um, it would be pretty much straight west okay. of Lutzen. It's about similar northness, but towards the center Probably. of the state. Yep. Yeah. 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 Luke so you are in far north Minnesota mm-hmm. uh, inventing stand-up paddleboarding at age six. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> My son is six right now. <laughs> Actually, 
okay, this is a, this is a tangent, but we bought paddle boards this summer, real ones, not yeah. not makeshift ones. Yeah, yeah. And we were in Lake of the Ozarks in Missouri, and my son and wife were paddling around on the lake, and I was with my two daughters uh, swimming at the beach, and I look over, and my wife. She's she's laying out sunbathing, and my six year old son is just paddling her around the lake. <laughs> it's <laughs> just nice. like the coolest thing. <laughs> anyway, awesome. so I can I have a visual. Yeah, yeah. I You've have a more visual. More or less seen this. Yeah, more or less, <laughs> but um, also not in the far north alone, winning sure. a fishing tournament. So please go ahead. Yeah. So I legitimately thought they were going to allow me to enter. Yeah. My parents did not adequately prepare me for like this is an adult thing. So I had been hyped about this for weeks. Yeah. And I knew I was going to win. Did you know the lake well? Is that yes. why? It's the yeah. lake that our cabin was on. Oh, okay. so I'm like, this is my lake. Yeah. And it's not a big lake either. So yeah. like, I'm going to win. <laughs> so come the day of the tournament, like I, I walked up to the thing like the, and they're like, you are a kid. <laughs> yes, and I am. I don't remember exactly what they said to me, but that was the gist of it was yeah. like, no, you can't do that. Yeah. And I'm like, well, I'm still going <laughs> to. And they're like, well, you, I mean, you know, you, we can't stop you from fishing. It is a public lake, but like you can't win a prize. I think it was like a hundred bucks or something. Yeah. It was a, it was a very small tournament. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, well I'm still going to do it. So I go out on my windsurfing board with my life jacket, my paddle, my one fishing pole. And it was, it was just biggest fish. Okay. There was no, it was a very informal, it wasn't like the Bass Pro stuff. Sure. You know, this is like 30 years ago, 32 years ago, I guess. And I proceed to catch a seven pound walleye. Bring it back. That is a and I'm like, did I? Walleye. No one bought a. No one brought a bigger fish than me. Whoa. So I won technically, but I. I, but te- you didn't. I technically didn't. Yeah. In spirit, I did. That is a massive <laughs> fish. Have you ever caught a walleye, Marshall? No. My have you ever stories. seen one? Uh, probably not. They're beautiful. Not they're, they like the, the they're like the they're like the prized fish of the north. Yeah. And they're super tasty. They are the best tasting yeah. fish in the world. And I'm with you there. Walleye's fantastic. Yeah. I love eating fish. I have just never caught one. Yeah. My my fishing stories involve uh, people getting fingers caught in hooks and me having to run <laughs> a mile mm-hmm. to get my mom. So I have sorry. those too. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Sorry, Kale Bravey, if you're listening and the torture we put you through in the sixth grade. So. This book initially started with a fishing story, and for some reason really? I took it out and I kind of regret it. It's now the intro again in the audio book. Oh, cool. But it's it started with a... Not so much a fishing story as much as a traumatic story that happened to occur while I was fishing. But oh, wow. That set the tone for the whole thing. Really? There's what? a lot of overlap between fishing and mental health. Yeah. It's all about looking in the dark places, finding the stuff you can't see beneath the surface. You guys know. Sure. Mm-hmm. Sure. I, I got to ask you, was one of the titles a fishing title as well? Is that the mm-hmm. one that got one vote? I don't... <laughs> Thing. It wasn't the one that got one vote. I think the big problem with the one vote one is it had a really cheesy font. Oh. Sure. <laughs> I did do a joke one that a lot of people didn't realize was a joke. I don't actually remember what the title was, but it had a picture of a dolphin on it. <laughs> and I posted that. I'm like, yes, no. And I thought everyone would know it was a joke. And a bunch of people messaged me and they're like, dude, no, do not do this. I'm like, it was a joke. <laughs> Yeah. So I, I have I have a problem sometimes with my humor can be a little too dry. Yeah. Sure. My wife spent a year thinking I was a jerk because of it before she actually realized she liked me. So before you were dating or after? Oh before. Yeah. That would be a problem if it was yeah. after. Yeah, I was just, you know, <laughs> maybe you were charming at first and then went through no, the dry it was the, phase. It was or, the opposite. It was the opposite. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 
So um, there's a there's a lot there and everything you just said. But I'm curious, did you actually pursue? Well, first of all, that sounds like the story of where the red fern grows. Except, have you seen? Have you read that book or I seen think when the I was movie? like young? Yeah. Oh my gosh, you read that or seen nope. it? Okay, come on. No, so, we're gonna go through this. Again. So, so there's a running, there's again. a running joke. I bring up books or things, and Mar- <laughs> I was like, Marshall, you know this, and he's like, No, I don't. Anthony, I wasn't I thought, homeschooled. <laughs> I, thought, <laughs> I thought where the red fern grows was a sure thing. Oh, well, oh, I was thinking of fern gully. Fern gully. That's different. It's super different. It's very different. So yeah. where the red fern grows is about a boy in Oklahoma who saves up enough money to get uh, two. Um, two hounds for hunting raccoons and he uh, spoiler spoiler alert this book has been out for like 50 years or 60 or something like that so no spoilers he wins this tournament with his dogs that's an all-adult tournament nobody thinks he's gonna win oh yeah and he has to fight to enter it and he's just got this love of of these dogs it's highly highly recommend the book and then the movie so imagine that only they never let him enter but you just won anyway though I mean, they almost didn't, they give, didn't him give him the prize money. money though. Yeah, he did. See, get I was going to use the money to buy a new fishing hole. Yeah, this was going to be the jumping-off point for this my is career. The launch, yeah. So this was like a major setback they didn't get at this for you. point. I'm sorry. Yeah, it was hard. So did you actually pursue it though? No. No. Okay. I decided I love it so much that I want to keep it as a hobby. Sure. Because when I actually started watching. You know, I probably had a really idealized version of it in my head. Like yeah. you just fish and you get paid. And yeah. it is technically true. Yeah. But when I actually started watching fishing tournaments, I'm like, that doesn't look fun. Stressful, right? It's just a job. Yeah. And yeah. that's like, that is the only, fishing is the only thing that for my entire life has worked. Like yeah. as a, as a release. Yeah. I don't ever want to lose that. And I'm afraid yeah. if it was my job, I'd lose it. So sure. that was kind of why. That unless you are literally the best in the world, which I maybe I would have been. I don't mm-hmm. know, but you got to be like top three in the world, or you're not yeah. making much money off it. Yeah, then it's kind of a, a lot of travel. Anyway. Yeah, it's not super compatible with a family. I think so. Yeah. This is a better fit for me for sure. Have you found any nice spots to fish in the area? Because I haven't. Not really. Yeah, um, I want to teach my kids and take them to the fishery, and they just get mad at me because they're not getting Prairie Park? Prairie yeah. Park is not great. It's gross. No. Um, this is the first place I tried paddleboarding, <laughs> surrounded by dead fish yeah. last April. The best... I've heard McBride is good, but I think you need a boat. Yeah. The best non-boat fishing, honestly, is Indian Creek. Yeah. There's a lot of good fish. Cool. I mean, you're not going to catch anything huge, but yeah. quantity-wise, you'll do all right. Yeah. Cool. It's good to know. <laughs> Waxwing fishing trip next summer. <laughs> To Indian Creek. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Bring your waiters. Bring your waiters. <laughs> um, let's dive into this book a little bit. Sure. Um, Marshall was, uh, true to form, Marshall was much more proactive about reading it. I read it um, last night and today. Um, so some is fresh and some I skimmed over. Uh, Marshall read it thoroughly, but a while ago. Yeah. 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 So... Um, but I'm I'm interested. Are you willing to share the fishing story that is the launch for the audiobook? Oh, absolutely. Is that, yeah, I would love mm-hmm. to hear that. So the this lake that I was talking about that we grew up on, super clear, even by northern Minnesota standards, like like about 15 feet, almost like the ocean, right? And you know, you probably know this how a lot of those lakes, they have this gradual, and then they just go like that. 
Yeah, we have so. in the lake my grandpa's cabins on in central, north central. We call it the hole. Yeah, yeah. The we best, call it the drop off. Same the, thing. Yeah, sure. same thing. So yep. you can uh, there's there's this really distinct like point of demarcation where you can see everything, and then it's just a black hole. Yeah. And so the way we used to fish, because it was so clear when we were kids, I can't remember if I said this, but I'm the oldest of three. Mm-hmm. So me and my little siblings, we would just sit on the edge of the boat and just like sight fish. Mm. Like you could, it was almost more like hunting. Wow. You'd see a fish, drop it down, pull it up, and that's how we'd fish. But if you dangled in the drop-off, you never really know what was going to come up because you couldn't see. So I was doing that, and my face was inches above the water. And in like, I don't know, a quarter of a second, I mean, it happened so fast I couldn't even say, I just saw this. Something turned, and it was huge, like bigger than me huge. I'm sure knowing what I do now, I'm sure it was a huge muskie or something like that. Right. I didn't know that vocabulary at the time. And I had what I think was probably a panic attack. Wow. Didn't have that vocabulary, of course, but yeah. like I just froze and I couldn't talk and I just started crying. And my mom was like, what's wrong? And I, I couldn't even say it. I didn't even know how to, I mean, I couldn't talk, but even if I had been able to speak, I wouldn't have known how to explain what had just happened because somehow I knew that like that thing was going so fast I think it was chasing a fish that was after my lure because they do that yeah had it not turned around that thing would have smashed into my face Mm. and those things have teeth yeah and I think I feel like I almost died and I basically developed an obsession with like deep water and muskies and fish. I was already obsessed with fishing, but this was a different level. I saved up all my money, like birthday money and all that for like nine months. And I went and bought like this deep sea fishing. Basically I got obsessed with wanting to know what that was. Yeah. Cause I had only seen a little bit of it for a second. And I had like nightmares about this thing every mm-hmm. night and I could not stop thinking about it. And I knew that I was never going to be able to stop thinking about it unless I actually caught it so i like researched all this stuff and bought like deep sea fishing gear and these lures that were like this big and i went back there again and again and again and again i never actually caught it Mm. but i think that's what started me thinking the way i do about like i'm more interested in the stuff that you don't see yeah because i used to love fishing in the shallow water where you can see everything and that day i was like what's over there yeah. Mm. What is down there where you cannot see? Yeah. And that's basically therapy, right? Like we talk about the stuff that people won't talk about with anybody yeah. else out there. And I think that day, I think I was like nine, but I feel like that's the day that set the framework for me being interested in mental health. Cause mental health is basically like fishing in people's brains. Sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I love this story. I'm actually, now I really want to listen to your audio version. I'll give you a code. <laughs> I got codes. I'll get you codes. <laughs> yeah, because it's like, it, when I was reading your book, you know, I was so fascinated with this idea of like, I would classify your book as a self-help book for people mm-hmm. that haven't been to therapy. Like, yeah, are afraid to talk about it. Yep. Don't that's have kind the of the words. aim, yeah. Yeah, like, like, hey, how do I get into this? Normalizing my experience with exactly what you're saying what's in the dark yeah Um, yeah it's a beautiful story to to start what's happening right there i appreciate that so i'm i'm curious based off that and and this is a theme i i pulled out in reading your book too um i'm interested in how you think about or make sense of 
the fact that instead of like, I, I feel like, and this is a therapy thing too, or just like a <clears throat> encountering pain in our lives thing where we hit a crossroads where like something terrible happens or yeah. something scary or whatever. And some people turn away and try to get away from yeah. whatever that thing is. Yeah. And some people, um, dive deeper to, to continue the metaphor. Mm-hmm. I'm curious how you make sense of that impulse or if you ever even thought about it. I mean, it's just fascinating to me that your impulse, you're nine years old mm-hmm. was like, I'm going to get that. Mm-hmm. I'm going into that rather than, um, never fishing or swimming yeah. again. You know, <clears throat> funny thing is I kind of did both actually. Yeah. Action wise I pursued. Yeah. But what I was feeling on the inside was not like, I got to find that thing. Cause like it wasn't like confidence. I, I yeah. was terrified. Yeah. To this day, I still have a little bit of a phobia of water where I cannot see the bottom. Wow. I yeah. was absolutely terrified and it affected how I saw things every moment after that. Wow. So yeah, like it was both. I was not like fearlessly yeah. pursuing the sea monster. Yeah. Or whatever yeah. It was, but, um, I just knew <laughs> That if I never saw it again, yeah. which I didn't, but that's neither here nor there, <laughs> that it would haunt me for the rest of my life. Yeah. And that was kind of right. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I have caught giant muskies since then. Yeah. I was going to ask I, if you had. I started the whole thing. My family's all obsessed with muskie fishing now. Yeah. They acted like I was crazy when I was little. Yeah. Like, yeah. why do you want to buy all this? deep sea fishing gear and <laughs> look for these fish that you probably don't even see half the time. Now they're yeah. all into it. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny how that are. plays out. Yeah. But, um, but I have <clears throat> caught, I, I'm sure that's what it, there's nothing else in that lake that is that big. So yeah. I'm sure it was a muskie. Yeah. Yeah. So I've caught, I, I kind of had my redemption in 09. I caught a 48 inch muskie on Lake Vermilion. Nice. Oh yeah. Familiar. Which is yeah. probably about the same size as what yeah. that thing was. So cool. Oh, Not awesome. literally the same fish, but close enough. But close enough. Yeah. But they still kind of freak me out. They're scary. They are. I caught a small one in McBride a couple yeah. of years ago. Yeah, they're in there. And, uh, and then fast forward to this summer, I was paddleboarding with my son. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were in the middle of McBride and he, we, we were swimming like off the board and stuff. And I had a few flashes of like, I caught a baby muskie in this yeah. lake. I don't know if I want to be swimming yeah, out here with my boy. Yeah. 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 So two anecdotes, and then I'd love to to get back to the yeah. to the meat. Um, have you ever seen the movie Grumpy Old Men or Grumpy yeah, Old Men? Yeah, yeah. What was the it, name? The uh, Catfish Hunter. Cat. That's what it was called. The, I never understood that the, name. The giant fish. Why is the giant fish called the catfish? Hunter? I don't know. It hunts that always confused me. But that plugs into this Minnesota lore that I'm mm-hmm. not sure if you're familiar with. But like every lake has a lunker. Yeah. Oh yeah. My my grandpa's lake, Little Lake Hubert. It's not his lake. It's where his cabin is. For all intents and purposes, it's his lake. <laughs> Second cabin on the lake. Um, we always talked about this twenty-five pound northern pike lunker mm-hmm. that you know. Every time we lo- we lose a we would lose a, <laughs> a lure. Yeah, Marshall, the way you're looking at me. <laughs> no, this is, this is, is legit every time a we thing. every time this we lose is, a, lo- yep, yep. a lure, my grandma or grandpa would go, "Oh, it might have been the lunker." <laughs> <laughs> we had it one. So <laughs> that same fish, that fish was in this very particular bay. Yeah. And every now and then when we were fishing in that bay, especially in the evening, all the bait fish, like the white fish and the ciscos and stuff, would just, like hundreds of them as a school, yeah. would just start jumping out of the water like they were running away from something. Yeah, it's the lunker. We, that, we called it Mr. Big. Mr. Big. Actually, my mom made that name up. I'm not a huge <laughs> fan of that name. It's awesome. 
but yeah, that was our that was our version of the of yeah, the lunker of the yeah. lunker. Yeah, <laughs> and in the movie Grumpier Old Men, there's Catfish Hunter, which mm-hmm. have you seen that? <laughs> Grumpy Old Men. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's one thing yeah. I have seen. Have you yes. seen Grumpier Old Men? Probably not. Where they actually catch Catfish Hunter? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Famously filmed in uh, Shisok, or Center City, close really? to where my in laws are. Yeah. yeah, the 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 church where the wedding happens is. Yeah, down the road from hmm. my in-laws' house. Sorry, Minnesota. I I miss Minnesota. I Minnesota culture is unique. <laughs> you think unique. you know Iowa, Minnesota, Midwest, Midwest? You wouldn't think it's that different. No. It is. Oh no, it's it's, it's a very di- different. it's a different world yeah, up there. I've, it's I've a good world. On. I remember when <laughs> when we were talking about hats that one time you were going on that trip and you described your style as. Uh, Lumber sexual. I can't believe you just I'm, said that I'm on there. I'm feeling lumber sexual vibes right now, and I'm not, not at all. This is real. This is <laughs> the, lumber sexual is like in mm-hmm. north the north loop of Minneapolis, where you wear flannels, not for. That is a documented for, cultural phenomenon. Yeah, it's <laughs> I'm, true. I am experiencing it right now. It's yeah. recovering lumber sexuals. <laughs> no, you're not. You're getting. This is. We're talking about like real in the lake in the woods. All right, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> what, what you know, we've talked about nice coffee shops. With we're not talking issues. about Twin City stuff. Here. No, this is, <laughs> this is this is the, this is the real in the deal. woods. <laughs> where I'm the lunkers happy. are real. I'm happy to be a part of this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I'm interested, Scott. Yeah. Uh, I so I, there was another podcast you were on, and I wish I could remember it. Uncut something um, was, that, was that what is? No, no, that's a different. Re, if one. it was recent, was it causing the effect? Yeah, with yeah, the other Scott. Yeah. Oh yeah, kind of yeah. high strung Italian. Yes, yeah, yeah. He's lots awesome. of energy. It was awesome. Yeah. yeah, um and in that you kind of told the story at how you arrived to the point of writing this book, um and you had alluded in our conversation before we started recording that this was kind of. uh a surprise and maybe a bit of an accident. Yeah. Um, not all the way an accident. I mean, you finished it, but the start of it really was though. Yeah. Cause there's uh, a part of that story and I don't know why I didn't mention it on that podcast. Cause honestly, it's probably the most interesting part of the story. The real starting point for this book was almost exactly two years ago today. It was Thanksgiving day, 2019. I was working with a therapy client. I've probably been seeing her for about six months. Like one of the most stuck people that I have ever known. Like nothing made a dent. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of it was her, like her life. Mm-hmm. Her life was just not good. And I just, I just felt like I want to do so much more for her. And I knew holidays were really hard for her. And Thanksgiving morning, I woke up early and I sent her like a, a three or four paragraph email just kind of a general like I know this is hard for you I don't even remember exactly what I said but I know I shared I I did a little more disclosure in that email than I typically would in an actual therapy session and she responded later that day and she said something along the lines of like this is the most helpful thing you've ever said to me Mm. and it was it wasn't even therapy it wasn't like here are some cognitive behavioral Mm -hmm. strategies for Thanksgiving it was just me talking to her Mm-hmm. which was simultaneously a really good and a really bad feeling. Like, mm. It was nice to know that it helped, but then I'm like, well, why am I not doing that in therapy? Mm. And it just kind of made me think, like, why am I us- only using half of myself in therapy, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I thought maybe I should write more stuff like that instead. And that's kind of what got me. That, that's what planted the seed. I didn't like start writing that day or anything, mm-hmm. but if I really trace it all the way back, that was the moment where I thought I should do something with this. 
because the level of disclosure that I engage in in this book, I would not do in a therapy session, obviously. It's, mm-hmm. it's a bit more. Mm-hmm. But I do think that, that some people... Some people need that connection with you, you know? They need to know. I don't think people care about your journey if they don't think your path somewhat resembles their path, right? Yeah. Like, who cares if you're in a good spot if your life is totally different than theirs? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what started the whole thing, was that email and her response to it. Yeah. Well, it's funny you say that, because I was, uh, <clears throat> I talk about those clients a lot, especially when they come in for consults. You know, I always view the therapeutic, therapy as a, a relationship and yeah. a lot of people will come in that have had previous therapists and they're not used to um they're not used to therapists sharing their own experiences mm-hmm. in a therapeutic way to draw out emotions or experiences from the client yeah um and they'll have this this agenda or this this viewpoint of like someone's a guru or someone's an expert or someone's mm-hmm. this and it's like no i'm just a person i just know therapy like but use this um, yeah. or I can draw from my own experiences whether I'm labeling it explicitly or not as a way to help them connect with something mm-hmm. and that's where I feel the most alive um, yeah. doing therapy personally so it's really amazing to hear you talk about like yep hey this is something that connect with a client and then mm-hmm. boom now I'm writing a book <laughs> yeah it changed everything for me because I was I was probably one of those therapists that your clients had seen before sure. they came to you to some degree before then mm-hmm. because you know how it is when we're being trained. They tell you not to do that. Sure. Don't talk about yourself. Don't sure. disclose it all. Or the therapy session will end up being Now they're you. being trained by me. Good. Good. <laughs> I like that. Come to Mount Mercy. <laughs> or Phil. No. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. I mean, I have... I have, uh, You're right. Clearly, we are on the same page with this one, which is very validating. I think if you cannot engage in a little bit of disclosure from time to time without the therapy session being about you... Mm-hmm maybe you're not a very good therapist because it's not that hard. Is it? I don't think it is. It's doable. You shouldn't talk about yourself the whole time. Of course, there's gotta be boundaries, but if you can't occasionally let a person know that you really get it, not just like, Oh, I read about that in the book, but you really get it. If you can't do that without screwing up your dynamic, you should work on that Mm because that is a thing that can be done in Mm -hmm. our field. I believe in that. There was a, I went through a, a very clear, like a very distinct pivot from the type of therapist that you're, you were describing with your clients. Like it was, I had this image in my head of like the guru, you know, I wanted to be, and it was the, the guru masking deep, deep, deep insecurity, Mm -hmm. both as a professional Mm -hmm. and like in my personal life, I was young, um, you know, in my twenties getting my doctorate, sitting in an office doing outpatient therapy and like my personal life was in shambles, you know, it was, and I was very like cerebral. I I remember this so clearly the theories of therapy come quickly to me and I love them. Mm -hmm. And so I'm I'm a professor, but I stayed there. And I remember one of the parts of your book that I really appreciated is how you sprinkled in poetry. And Mm -hmm. I want to get to that later. Um, but I remember writing this poem right after I started going to my own therapy um, and kind of having this moment of like, what have I been doing? Like, Mm -hmm. I, 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 this is not good. (laughs) Like I need to do something else. And um, I, I don't remember it, you know, I don't, I didn't memorize it or anything, but the two metaphors um, that I used were 
looking down at people's problems from a high tower, mm-hmm. you know, above and seeing every client as an opportunity to exercise professional skill that would get, bring me one rung up on the ladder of whatever I thought what I was climbing, yeah. you know, because I had, yeah. again, I was early in my doctorate as young, insecure professional. And I thought like, if I can master this awesome therapy technique, like watch this. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, the poem ends with forgive me because mm-hmm. I really felt that I just had this sense like from a lot of these people I encountered and it wasn't all bad. I know that. But in that moment, I felt like yeah. I really left a lot of people behind yeah. um, be- because of my inability to do what we're talking about, yeah. you know, yeah. um, and it, there there's a there's a lot more to that story. But I also have if you'll notice up on my bookshelf up there i have a a bottle painted like with the Mm -hmm. night sky yeah that that person um it's probably like i got that from a client that i work with a teenager and i worked with her for about three years and um she was very difficult to work with very closed off but one session right at like as i wrote this poem had this awareness all this stuff i just decided i was going to look her in the eyes the whole time yeah. Cause she would never talk to me. You know, I didn't blame her. She was, it was in a school. Um, and she had moved in from the inner city and it was a rural community. It was just not good. Sure. And I remember thinking like, I'm just going to look her in the eyes. <laughs> and she talked for an hour. Yeah. It was crazy. And afterwards I remember just sitting back in my chair and be like, okay, this is it. Like I humanized yeah. myself in order to, to humanize her as well. Yeah. You know, and it was, it was really transformative. I want to read this out of your book, though. Okay. Um, uh, it says, it's in, um, in one of the earlier sections, page 51, uh, but it's under a promise. He said, I promise that I'm just as frustrated as you are. And the first sentence is, professional mental health is a lottery. And then it, um, uh, it goes on for a little bit, talking about, I've heard stories of providers getting frustrated with their clients and telling them, quote, I can't help you. Um, goes on to talk about people relaying their trauma with without it being um, honored and supported and it just sort of like hanging there. Um, and then you said, and this is, you know, this is getting me a little emotional. You said, if you've had any of these experiences, I want to say something to you on behalf of the entire mental health field. It's not you who have failed. It's us. Mm-hmm. You came to us in a dark time of your life. You were vulnerable and open and we didn't give you what you needed. I am so, so very sorry about that. So our, our, our focus is obviously men's mental health. Um, and, and, um, I think in a particular way, both through experiences and also just like observations, men often feel unwelcome in the therapy space. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I've heard from a lot of friends and other people who listen and, and kind of the goal of what we're doing here is to bring the therapy space out of therapy you know and i i just i wanted to read that though because i think often men feel rejected and unaffirmed and invalidated in the therapy space and it can can feel like it's not for them so i'd love to you know just maybe hear more of your thoughts on what motivated that writing in particular not it doesn't have to be focused on men but i just it feels really relevant to what we're up to on the podcast and it sounds like a lot of your story as well so that part is mostly just based on the stories my clients have told me because I, um, I kind of developed, so I've been at Mercy for five years and I was at the place I was at before that, um, it was up in Twin Cities in Burnsville actually. 
for four years. So at both places, people got to know me fairly well. And I kind of developed a reputation for like, I'm the guy you send your clients to when they're stuck. I'm like the last resort guy. Mm -hmm. I am very, very rarely someone's first therapist, like almost never. And so many, many of the people I've seen have had like seven, eight, nine therapists have been in some form of therapy for 10, 20, 30 years, right? And just the things they tell me that they've experienced from our colleagues are, even if they're not, I don't hear many stories where it's like overtly abusive. or That's rare, thankfully. There's just a lot of unhelpful things. Just a lot of nothing, I feel like. Just empty therapy sessions where nothing happens and nothing is really talked about. And I'm just so fed up with the whole thing, honestly. Like, I just don't feel like there are that many of us that are really all that good at this. That's really what it is, honestly. That's, that might be offensive to some, but that is legitimately how I feel. It is. How do you make sense of that, Scott? Um, given, like, first, I, I, unfortunately, I agree with you, you know, um, but also, I, you know, being a professor and, and being like you, being in the education world, going through school, mm-hmm. I haven't really met anybody who gets into this and is like, I don't like people. I really don't want to help people. I just sort of want to like punch my time clock hour after hour and get out. Yeah. But so often that's, that's the unfortunate landing spot of so many of our up. colleagues. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, how do you make sense of that? and how that happens, why that happens. I have my own thoughts. I'm sure Marshall, you do as, as, re- as a recent graduate, but um, yeah, I'd love to hear yours first. I'm probably going to mostly defer to you guys on that. Cause the fact is I don't get it. I, I genuinely don't get it because I, I know I should, I'm a therapist. I'm supposed to be really good at perspective taking mm-hmm. and empathy, but other than like, Really early on in your career, I, I relate to a lot of what you said earlier. I used to basically in therapy have like an algorithm in my head when I was first getting out. Option A, can I say something smart? Option B, can I say something lighthearted to lighten the mood? Mm-hmm. If I can't think of anything, then I'll just stay silent and wait for them to continue talking. That was like how I did therapy for my first two or three years. Mm-hmm. When you're new, yeah, like it takes some time to figure this stuff. This is not an intuitive thing that we do, right? Mm-hmm. But after that, I genuinely don't understand how you can be in a room with somebody who needs you and just be like, I got nothing. Mm-hmm. I, I don't. I don't get it. Mm-hmm. So I'm interested in hearing your theories. I'm going to take a long step back here for a second. <laughs> <laughs> to piggyback off what you were saying about a client earlier to answer your question. Yeah. Okay. Like, unlike you two, I don't have my doctorate. Sorry. But but I did spend 10 years working with uh, uh, youths that have been in the juvenile justice system in different capacities, whether it was um, I started out with uh, residential treatment facilities and then I did working for the county in different capacities. Um, but one thing I learned really, really early on, and it's hitting on what you were talking about earlier, is becoming a person with a client. Um, yeah. I knew I had to, well, I mean, it just it's an experience that I, I've talked about briefly on here before, but I had to question myself what I knew and how I knew it and where it came from really early on and get out of a black and white or all or nothing mentality with how I saw the world and how I saw people. 
Um, and from that point on, it's like, oh, this is a person. This is a person that I can't say I would have made a different choice as them, even though they did something that was yeah. truly horrendous. Mm-hmm. Um, because I didn't have their experiences. I didn't grow up the way they grew up. Um, I didn't see the things that they saw, and I didn't need the things that they needed at those times. Mm-hmm. And I got to know this person, and from that point on, for me, there was a, a transformation of questioning everything that I knew, but also, how do I connect with every individual that I come in contact with in this setting? Um, I'm with you where I don't think people, or I remember you said it as well. I don't think people get into this to, um, be mean no. or suck. I don't think it's malicious yeah. and it's certainly not for the money. No, no. <laughs> um, but I think where they work, what they've been taught, the schooling they have, the experiences they have beforehand really play a huge role into how they present themselves and connect with people in the room. Um, I mean, not to get into super big specifics, but I mean, I graduated year and a half ago. Um, and it was so interesting because at, at Mount Mercy, like our cohort was so, there was such a, a wide range of individuals and experiences in this program. Um, I mean, there are people that straight out of college. There are people like me who had been working for 10 years. There are people like me who had been in the field. There are people like me who had basically a, a whole career for 30 or 40 years and then was just like, you know what, I'm going to do this now. Um, and one thing that, that always stood out to me is people that hadn't had experiences working with other people in this capacity, whether it was a, a counseling capacity or just being um, a way to form a relationship, they were really struggling trying to make sense of theory like you're talking about and then co- applying that as a human being to another one. And like you're saying, like people come into therapy and it's like, or you're early on and it's like, boom, yeah, I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do this. Mm-hmm. But if the relationship isn't there, you can't focus on being a relational person. Um, I think you can get really stuck and not only just really stuck, but burn out. Yeah. And to me, that's what, again, I'm at a much different point in my uh, journey than you two, but that's where I feel like bad things happen. People get burnt out. They don't know what to do. And it's like, okay, well I can come in here and just be present and it'll be fine. Yeah. Um, or I can do stick to a specific theory and ask these certain questions and it'll be there. But if the questions don't have something that's connected to them in a way that can go to the depths, then you're kind of just spinning your wheels in place where it's very surface level. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, it can become a habit just like anything else. I know what you said about, like showing up and being present. I'm on some therapy forums online and whatnot. And that's something I hear a lot. Like all you really have to do to be a good therapist is, is be present and listen and create a safe space. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, no, no, you have to do more than that. That is not enough. That is a good starting point. Sure. But if that's all you got, most of your people are going to be, that might be enough for some people. Yeah. Most of them are going to need more. Yeah. I'm with you. I want to throw my theory out there. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> I, uh, I think you know, like I, so my thoughts basically, and this might be just cause again, my position in this whole equation, but I have, uh, I have major concerns about the process of education and early employment of therapists. Um, until, they can land in a place like this when they're fully licensed and can can uh, set you know do a private practice or get into a secure um, agency or something like that. But I think a lot of it has to do with the paradox that as therapists we're healers and our product is our humanity, mm-hmm. 
our technique is how to connect and, and, and help or change agents and, and healers. Um, but we exist in a system that basically functions the same as a, a system that produces material products. I mean, it, you know, yeah. it's, it's, yeah. and this isn't an indictment on capitalism or anything like that, but we're, we're healers, we're change agents. Um, and we are, we ask each other and, and you know, if, speaking from my position, I ask my students and my supervisees to be like wholly present, like you're talking about. Um, but they also have to produce a certain amount of hours or, you know, billable hours to make a living, um, to meet their requirements for their job. The paperwork burden can be really high. Um, and, and those pressures can be there. Uh, and I, my read is that a lot of therapists walk around with this feeling and students of therapy and walk around with this feeling of like, I'm, am I going to be okay? Yeah. Like if I do this thing, if I say this thing, if I engage in this way, if I share some self-disclosure, mm-hmm. am I like going to get kicked out of my program? Right. Yeah. Or like, am I going to be like, have an ethics violation? Like, am I, and I don't think we do a good job as like, the, the I it's I don't, I'm not, I don't think I'm an elder in the field. I'm a gatekeeper though. And yeah, in many ways, if you do ever do supervision, you mm-hmm. know, in a certain point, like those of us further along the road, I'm not sure we do a good job of saying like, no, no, no you're you're actually okay. It's really good that you're here. It's good that you're learning. It's good that you're trying new things, and and uh, we want you to grow. You know, I, I don't think we do a good job of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, you know, for me, I locate the problem much more in, in the process of, of, of coming into the field. Um, and then, of course, we have things like you know, just the pay rate is really precarious and it's bad. And like yeah. you say, we don't get into this make, in to make money. And that's kind of a joke. But I remember my master's program like, well. I want to make money. Yeah. I really want to do this. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's, it's kind of true unless you isolate yourself into a market and this is where my practice is. And mm-hmm. I don't know if yours is because of your, because you're the part of the mercy system, but middle, upper middle and upper class people mm-hmm. are, are who come to therapy with us here. Um, sure. And we try to make accommodations, some sliding scale fees. I have a pro yeah, bono yeah. spot and all those things. But, um, it like it creates the situation where uh, you know really high need populations aren't getting high quality services mm-hmm. because most of the providers that have access uh, or can provide those services for whatever reason are early graduates who yep. are exhausted, overtaxed. Yeah. And mm-hmm. anyway, that's we can do whatever we can with that. But I think I think that's a fundamental problem. We we don't take it seriously. Um, that we're we're people engaging in change with uh, with humans helping humans yeah you know yeah i want to hop in again real fast yeah please um the other thing and it's you you uh perked it for me i don't think we when we consult enough either we don't consult as human beings and like connecting like we are right now talking stories and talking about the depths of what's happening it's here's the problem. How do I fix the problem? Yeah. Which also perpetuates that problem. Yeah. Um, I mean, you and I had this, uh, a great Friday last, last week with our mm-hmm. other, 
um, colleague and then some, yeah. some old friends who are also in the field. And it's like, man, I was so jazzed after that day and it had nothing to do with talking about clients or figuring out problems. It had to do with just talking about big ideas and our experience with these big ideas. Yeah. And I don't think there's enough of that as well, which leads to this, you know, just trying to figure out a problem, isolating yourself yeah. and mm -hmm. continuing that burnout or that just exhaustion that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to pivot back to the book, Scott. Sure. Uh, I mentioned your poetry before. I love the inclusion of that. It's it um, it's really powerful. I, if you don't mind, I'd love to hear your thought process in including some of this writing. If it was writing you had done before that you had integrated into your narrative in the book, or if you were writing it in the process, um, because it's a you do this really interesting dance, and I think it's really effective of real quality mental health content. Mm -hmm. You know. Uh, delivered in a really accessible way and then these beautiful writings poems um that are also pretty dark you know yeah, yeah. and as someone that like likes dark things yeah. i'm like it's, i'm it's, down with it you should see not, my markings on your on your on your poems it's not unintentional um, i'm sure it's not uh but you know like there's an there there is a world where self-help books self-help books are mm -hmm. are you know, kind of glittery and, and sparkly positive, and yes, positive. Yes. And just like, I mean, I planted the seed with this uh, musky story, but mm -hmm. you didn't shy away from going past the place yep. that most of us would turn around and, and step away from with some of these, these, these poetic pieces in yeah. particular. So I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on that. Well, you get it first. I mean, that was, that was 100% the aim what you just said. I wanted to take it to a place that other books don't go to because so each of the poetry pieces has has two parts. You don't, yeah, I'm sure you know this. There's a part one and part yeah. two. Yeah. I wrote them while I was writing the book. So they're not 100% accurate to this, but the part ones for each one are meant to be like what I felt in my darkest times, which for me was mostly late mid to late adolescence. Sure. They're not actually like journal entries pulled from my childhood, but I remember what it felt like. Mm. And the part twos are like, if I knew that person today, if I met 16 year old me, what, what the hell would I say to that guy? Mm -hmm. Well, that's the answer mm -hmm. because no one else knew what to say to him. And yeah, I wrote them concurrently. And that was, I tried to think of what would I have needed then? Because self-help books existed when I was 16 mm -hmm. and I was struggling and I didn't buy a damn one of them because I looked at them and it was like, how to make your life beautiful. I'm like, right. oh, that's not going to happen. <laughs> like that's, that is 300 steps away from where I'm at right now. And I just want like one or two. And when I was at that place, I was mostly just interested in knowing the people, in reading from people who I thought got it. Mm -hmm. I didn't care if they had a solution or not. I didn't read Eat, Pray, Love. I read Kurt Cobain's autobiography. You know, <laughs> I didn't read what other self-help books popular in the 90s. Uh, Steve, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I read Lords of Chaos. Yeah. Do you guys know what that is? Yeah, I almost watched the movie the other night and then I got too scared. <laughs> That's a mess Because it was, it was a little late and I was like, That's, have yeah, you heard of it? Yeah. No. You go ahead. You can explain. <laughs> it's about um, in mostly in the 90s. Uh, do you know what black metal is? Yes. It's about yes. the 90s Norwegian black metal scene, which basically involved burning churches, killing each other, and killing themselves. Sure. Like, that's pretty much what it was. 
that was more interesting to me because I felt like I wasn't that far off from that yeah. than reading about someone who's like, here are the seven steps you can take to making your life. But like, yeah. do you have any idea where I'm at right now? Mm. That's not step one is not like take a vacation. Right. No. Step one is don't want to die. And I wanted to reach those people. I wanted to reach the people who were in that place. I don't feel like anybody's writing to them. I feel like most self-help books, and I know it's, it's a money thing, right? Mm -hmm. Because the people who are in that place, most of them don't have much money. Mm -hmm. Self-help books for the most part are written for people who are already pretty okay-ish and just want to find that next level. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. Those people deserve help. I'm not disparaging that, but that's, that's missing a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And that's who I was writing for mm -hmm. those people. I went, um, I was sharing about, you know, this pivot that I made in my practice. It went along with a, in just a, a very, a whole life change, mental health, spiritual life, how I made sense of my experience in the world, like everything. Um, but I remember early on in that process, having grown up in a, a conservative, highly religious Catholic world, I couldn't find anybody speaking or writing that was speaking the language that I needed. Yeah. I remember yeah. that distinctly. And I was really trying, like, I'm not engaged in faith anymore, uh, faith practice. But at that time, I was really trying to hold on. Yeah. I kept going to these spiritual directors and asking, like, I need, I can't find, I need a new language to talk about Jesus, to talk yeah. about faith, to talk about prayer. And these were men I really respected and I still do, but they said, no, you don't <laughs> basically there is one language yeah. and you need to find a way to connect with it. And I remember just like, no, I can't, I can't. That's what I'm telling you. Yeah. Like it's not possible. That's inadequate. Um, yeah. It's not enough. And I found the language in, uh, Rilke, the poet, do you know Rilke? The poet? I don't. He's a German poet. Um, highly recommended. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but it, but, I think you're what what I was looking for at that time was somebody who would speak beyond the boundaries of what was allowed in yeah. the world I lived in. Yeah. You know? Um and I wasn't trying to rebel or get away from it. I was trying to find a way to make sense of my experience yeah. in it, you know. Um and I it sounds like some of the motivation would be to of your writing is to reach beyond the boundaries of what's acceptable sort exactly. of in the space that you exist in as a, exactly. a writer. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Pr practitioner too. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Um, one of the, so I pulled out some themes. Um, but one of them though, uh, that I think existed mostly probably in your part one poems, <laughs> um, was this dynamic of isolation and separateness. Mm -hmm. I, I really connected with that personally, just from my own experiences, but you did a really great job writing about like um, just feeling a little bit removed from the human experience, your own yep. and others. Um, and, and then later on I have, I have notes about it, you know, and these are probably your part twos and some of your more techniques, but like looking to belong, finding a home, living mm -hmm. in the present, you know, those yeah. sorts of kind of like coming out. I'm curious, I'd just love to hear your, you know, some of your, your thinking around, um, I don't know what it was like to live in that separateness in, in that isolation yeah. and then come through it and how that happened. Um, again, in context with, uh, men listening, 
that so often the male experience is of is isolation yeah um internally and and externally mm-hmm. you know um so i, I would if you're yeah. willing i'd love to hear more about your thought process Always. behind that absolutely yeah. it's a hard thing to explain but yeah. the what comes to mind first is like i felt so far out of things like life in general that i i wasn't 100 percent sure i was real I wasn't sure I really existed. And there will be a little bit of a, generation, a generational gap with this because I'm about five years older than you guys, but The Matrix came out when I was a freshman mm, in high school. Not at all. Yeah. <laughs> I watched that entire well, you movie. you would have been like fourth grade. Yeah, you fifth have grade. That in fourth I, well, grade. Here's, <laughs> here's how I watched it. I watched it at the county fair, McLeod County Fair. The, the local Radio Shack TV <laughs> salespeople were there and they were playing The mm-hmm. Matrix. And I was showing chickens and my photography and I sat in the expo building and watched the entire movie. Wow. And my parents didn't know it. <laughs> so I remember watching in the seventh grade and then seeing Reloaded mm-hmm. shortly afterwards. But I watched Revolutions in the movie, yeah. the movie theater. Okay. Excuse me. So. Did you sneak in? I don't think so. It doesn't seem like you would have been I of age was, at that I time. I think I was 17. Maybe you were. It's pretty it took close. them a while to make that sequel. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Anyways, also prepare the, <laughs> for HBO Max in December 22nd for uh, another one. Matrix number four. I think I might need to get HBO Max. Dune's on there too, and the yeah. Harry Potter reunion's gonna yeah, be on there. there. Go. That whole plot twist, though, of like it's not real in that moment, and it was yeah. hard because I was watching it with two of my friends. One of them was a girl who was not taking it seriously, mm. and she was commenting on the movie the entire time in an English accent. So it was hard, but frustrating. <laughs> when that plot twist came, I was like. How did they know? Yeah. How did they know what I have been thinking this whole time? Mm-hmm. Wow. So that it, that's kind of what it was. And mm-hmm. how it changed so slowly, I didn't even notice. Mm-hmm. That's, mm-hmm. that's kind of what the book is meant to be is like, here's an accelerated version of what took me about 15 years mm-hmm. sure. of these little changes I made here and there along the way that kind of helped me come back to the world, I guess, and mm-hmm. realize like I can be here and I can do stuff. And I'm not some separate creature who's like got put here by accident, which mm-hmm. is more or less how I felt. Mm-hmm. I wondered if I was like, I legitimately thought like, am I an alien? Did I like get dropped? <laughs> is this a test? Did I get dropped off here? And are they going to come back for me later? Cause yeah. something, yeah. something's wrong here. Here, here. Um, did you ever talk to people about that? No. Yeah. Not even my friends. Even my friends who, like, honestly, probably would have got it because my friends were troubled, as was I. They yeah. read Lords of Chaos, too. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Here's my thing. I, that's why I fell into goth culture because yeah. I'm like, oh, these are the troubled people. Yeah. And they were, but the more of them I got to know, the more I was like, they have different troubles than me, though. Mm, like, sure. this isn't quite it. I was never 100% sure I found anybody who quite got it. Yeah. And that's part of why I felt like it was important to write. Because I'm like, if there's somebody out there who yeah. needs to see this and they don't have anybody in their life who gets it, I, I was sure when I was writing this book that for a significant proportion of the people who read it, those would be the most important parts. Mm-hmm. Not the, here's what you do, not the theory, yeah. not the... Th- this is what it's like. Mm-hmm. And you're not the only person in the world who's felt that. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it's the red pill trying to get the blue pill to see the light. Yes, exactly. Good Matrix reference. Nice. <laughs> I always forget. I mean, that's, the red and blue pills are very 
present right now in in our cultural dialogue, mm-hmm. but which one is which? The blue pill is the one that lets you continue to believe in your own delusions. Yes. The red pill wakes you up to the harsh, painful, shocking reality of what's actually going on. Got it. Yes. Got it. Just so you know, Scott, we're, we're in Anthony's office right now, but if you go into my office after this, my, my chair in the room is Morpheus themed. No. <laughs> okay. We're going to have to take a look at that one. We're yeah, going to have to do a tour. <laughs> it's uh, it's very Morpheus. Oh my goodness. <laughs> that was the motivation behind it. I'm going to need to see that. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking about reading some of these poems, but, um, or is there one that you would want to read out loud that, that do you feel like is particularly important? They're all kind of the same to me. Which one was most interesting to you? Go ahead. Either I don't, of I don't have a poem that was interesting, but you had a, uh, a line that I have stolen and then quoted you. Don't worry. Well, that was <laughs> what, that's like half the point of this. This is like a meant to be a use yeah. this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's. I mean, I'm a pretty avid reader, and uh, yeah, this is one of the best things I've read this year. So it goes. Uh, you're talking about. Um, putting oneself down. Okay. Yeah. You go, they're just clever, cleverly disguised lies about your self-esteem. Ninja insults masquerading as philosophy. I was pretty proud of that one. I'm not going to lie. So, it's <laughs> amazing. Like, sometimes when you're writing, you're like, Oh, that was good. I like that. one. <laughs> Say more about ninja insults masquerading as philosophy, please. So that was about the rhetorical questions we ask ourselves. Right. And a lot of the questions that we ask ourselves, have the implication that there is something wrong. So if you say like, why am I the way I am? You're not going to ask that question if you're happy with the way you are, right? So there's a clear implication that there's something wrong with the way I am. There's a problem with my current state. So in and of itself, you've already decided that there's a problem and you're looking for the explanation for the problem. But the premise of that whole section is, Maybe some of those things aren't problems. Or if they are problems, maybe they're not your fault. Mm-hmm. We gaslight the hell out of ourselves mm. all day, and yeah. it's, it's problematic. Why do you think that is? Why do we, gaslighting being like kind of tricking ourselves into believing something's not real and that it's our fault? Why I think, think that's, that's our it? culture. We've yeah. got this framework, right, where the assumption in our culture is that once you hit your benchmarks, you have gotten what you need. You know, once yeah. you're 18 and done with high school, that you are ready based on age and time. And that is stupid <laughs> <laughs> because those are not the pertinent factors to determine a person's readiness. Yeah. yeah. Some people do get everything they need from birth to 18 and some people get nothing. Yeah. I mean, nothing. And you guys know it. And mm-hmm. the idea that everyone starts adulthood on equal footing is just ridiculous and wrong and based on nothing and we internalize that and then we at least I did it I'm speaking for myself right now but Mm -hmm. I know I'm not the only one I hit adulthood and adulthood in air quotes (laughs) because adulthood being 18 is based on nothing yeah I heard somewhere that that's based on like World War II and need for workers but I'm not an expert on that but it's not consistent with brain development and the idea that once you hit that point, you're just inherently ready is just so insultingly wrong because so many of us have minimal preparation for what that's actually going to take. Yeah. But we assume that we have enough. Yeah. Because that's our culture. And so then 
anything we struggle with, we say, well, that must be on me. Yeah. Because other people are, other people have jobs, other people have partners, other people have kids, other people are happy. So if I'm not, I must be doing something wrong. Yeah. Did anyone ever tell you how to do those things? Because a lot of us don't get any training on that. Yeah. One of my favorite things to talk about with clients, and I'm with you, I think it's a, a, not just a cultural thing, but for this podcast specifically in our practice, and we see everyone, but like males specifically, yeah. that is very, very yep. present, at least in our area. And that's what I'll speak to yeah, for yeah. the most part. Um, but this idea of it's like, yeah, just pick yourself up by the bootstraps. Mm-hmm. It's like, have you ever tried to pick yourself up by your own bootstraps? Like, <laughs> right. It's not possible. It's physiologically <laughs> impossible. You cannot lift your own body. Right. <laughs> Unless you're Munchausen pulling your pigtail. <laughs> a, one of my favorite books that I both, teach is called... Both. Munchausen's pigtail. Yes. Uh, it's about uh, cybernetics. Um, familiar with it's surface level. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it's what it doesn't matter that much. <laughs> Sorry. We uh, we can unless, do a book share unless you're Munchausen. This. We can do a book share after this. <laughs> it is physiolo- physiologically and metaphorically impossible yes. to pull yourself up by your bootstrap. Sorry. Yeah. But that's the point, right? Like, yeah. uh, when do we buy into this and why do we hold on to it? Mm-hmm. I think that's almost a direct quote from someplace in your book, isn't it? it probably. And when, when, sure. See, probably. I think there was a, there was a, a part where you were talking about that. Like you have these series of questions. I think something like, is it, I don't remember where you were talking about it, but you were addressing just that. Like who says basically yeah. like, yeah. Who says who this? taught you this? Yeah. Who taught you this? And, mm-hmm. and, is it real? Yeah. 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 Ninja yeah. insults masquerading as philosophy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. yeah. No, there's a whole section on like questions that we do not ask. Yeah. They're great questions. And there's yeah. this assumption that the people who taught us how to do whatever our pertinent adult things are, were good at it. Yeah. That is not always the case. Not. Or as good as it gets at it. Yeah. Or yeah. they were doing their best and therefore it needs to be good enough for us. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay if people's best yeah. was inadequate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Something that um, I encounter a lot therapeutically um, is the idea that people will follow the narratives that they feel like they're quote unquote supposed to. Yeah. Um, high school, college, mm-hmm. job, partner, kids, um, sort of these benchmarks culturally of being okay. You know, if you do these things, yeah. you're okay. And uh, it, we do a lot of relationship therapy, being family therapists yeah. as well. And, and um, it applies in relationships too. They're like, we did these things or I did all of these things. And after following the script, they come to us and it's like, but I'm actually miserable. Yeah, but it sucks. I'm terrible. Yeah. yeah. Like, I'm, I'm really sad and lonely and I did the things and unfulfilled. I'm not happy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that is a time when I invite clients to grieve. Yeah. Yeah. Grieve and, and, and like grieve the loss of certainty. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think that's an invitation in your book as well is yes. to question certainty. Absolutely. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, mm-hmm. But I also don't think we can miss the 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 what it takes to actually um, question certainty, which is yeah. some grief, mm-hmm. grief that maybe your parents weren't what you thought they were, yeah. grief that the the things you believed weren't as true as you thought they were, mm-hmm. um, grief that your sense of self wasn't as solid as you thought it was, yeah. like all of these different things and. Um, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on yeah. that? Yeah. Well, a lot of that too was what what we call ambiguous grief, like. 
there's grief like I had this thing and I lost it. And then there's grief like I wanted this thing and I'm realizing I'm not going to get it. Yeah. yeah. I never had it. So I didn't lose it, but I planned on having it and it, it's not going to be there. It's the death of a dream. It's the, that is the, the loss of hope. That is yeah. literally word for word how I describe it. The death of a dream. Sweet. That is the first time I've heard anyone other than myself say that. <laughs> that was a moment. That was a moment. <laughs> I was going to say yeah. that, man. I'm you sorry. I'm no, sorry. No. I stole it. <laughs> I am happier that you said it than I would have been if cool. I said it. Because that doesn't happen very often. And I yeah. love it. Yeah. 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 Like like someone always planning on having kids and realizing yeah. like, oh, yeah. I'm not gonna. Or at least not my own biological children. Yeah. The world won't always acknowledge that as grief. Because mm-hmm. they're not going to be like, oh, you had a kid and, it, and they died. Well, No. I never had one. Not everyone understands that that is grief yeah. mm-hmm. because you planned on having it. You had this picture in your head of what things were going to look like and you have to accept now it's not going to be there. Yeah. yeah. Or sometimes you were talking about like parents and childhood. Mm-hmm. Everyone grows up at least to some extent thinking their parents are good parents. Mm-hmm. And at some point you might realize eh, maybe not so much. Yeah. That's grief too. <laughs> doesn't matter. They might still be alive. You might still have it. Yeah. You might have a decent relationship with them as adults, but to realize your childhood wasn't what you thought it was is grief. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And or what you needed. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Again, there's a part in your book where you, I think you talk about um, something that I know both of us have talked quite a bit about in therapy. Um, the idea that if your pain isn't the worst possible scenario, mm-hmm. then it doesn't count. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And especially with men, I've noticed this combination between, uh, I do a lot of attachment based work. Yeah. Um, we both do. And, and so inevitably that involves examining and, and healing attachment wounds from your early childhood and, and on. And the idea of loyalty to, to people's parents especially parents who have passed away and the so that like you know the people don't want to acknowledge there is pain at all because they feel like they're tarnishing a legacy you know somehow betraying their parent yeah and that is coupled with this dynamic where people say well it's you know it's actually it's not that bad and i hear men say this Mm -hmm. a lot yeah males especially white males they'll say like and i've had men young men as young as 16 or 17 all the way up to elderly men say this, like I have every privilege mm-hmm. that I'm, that I could have Yeah, I'm educated, supportive parents, financially well off, good job. You know, I'm white in, in the United States, yeah. like all, white male in the United, all of these things. There's no way my pain counts, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And if we're locating some of that pain within childhood experiences, and my parents were doing the best they could. So yeah. the combo of my pain not counting anyway and my parents doing the best they could and it's still not in the possibility that, that I have to heal from that. Yeah. Those two things, they show up in my experience. I'm curious if you've seen this, Marshall, too. The, they show up in the therapy room when I'm trying to be empathetic and, yeah. and like help people feel their pain, you know, and yeah. then like I feel bad for you. Yeah. 
they it's a negation of their pain. They're like, mm-hmm. it's not real. Yeah, like it's not yeah. that it didn't. It's not that bad. Well, to just piggyback off you, it's the the one I hear right after that is, well, someone has it worse. Mm-hmm. Like I know someone yep. has it worse. Like the kids like, in Africa right. who it's don't okay. have food. Right. So you better yeah, eat yeah. your food. Yeah. <laughs> but the funny thing is, don't you remember being a kid and your parents saying that to you and you being like, yeah, I don't totally care. I mean, like you care. Like, oh, that's sad. I wish yeah. that wasn't true. It doesn't. But make those kids are better. making me eat all this <laughs> yeah. crappy food. I actually remember. I I do to some extent feel really bad for my parents. I was you would not want to be my dad. <laughs> Cuz my parents tried that on me. Yeah. And my response was, are we going to send it to them? <laughs> and of course they're like, no. I'm like, so I probably didn't say it this way, but I said something a child version of like, then what is the relevance? Of that? Yeah. Yeah. Man, I'm glad I'm not my dad. <laughs> That would be hard. (laughs) Scott, do you need a family therapist? (laughs) For my own childhood self. (laughs) My daughter, early in the school year, I got home from work. She's nine. Very intelligent. And she sat down on the couch next to me. I was cuddling the the other two. And Mm -hmm. she's like, Dad, I know a word that you probably don't know I know. I was like, oh, yeah, what is it? She goes, metacognition, <laughs> thinking about your thoughts. I was like, I love you. <laughs> You're so smart. Do it again. <laughs> it was awesome. But that same energy turns around into something like, yeah. well, are we going to send it to the kids in Africa? Because if, if not, yeah. it's probably yeah. not a good That doesn't really have anything probably, to do with good point. this particular food here, <laughs> yeah. which is subpar. Yeah. Yeah. So how about that cereal, Dad? <laughs> Were you going to say something, Marshall? No, I'm not. Where are we at on time? Speaking well of, past where we usually speaking do, of kids. I'm having fun. This you're having fun. We can always do yeah. a part two. We, <laughs> I'm local. I would love <laughs> yeah. to do a part two. We should. I feel like we should probably wind it down sure. a little bit. Um, speaking of kids. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. It's about yeah. dinner time. Mine probably needs something uh, right now. Yeah, <laughs> always. Um so I, you know, I didn't plan this like sweeping conclusion or anything like that. Uh, so I guess we'll just, we'll see what comes up, but I guess, um, I'm curious from your perspective, Scott, like asking for like a wrap up or a summary feels too cheesy to me. So I guess what I'd ask for you is like, you know, again, keeping in mind that this is a podcast where we speak specifically to the male experience. Mm-hmm. Um, go ahead. I'm just going to shut you down real fast. Oh, boy. Here he goes <laughs> again. First. You better. No, oh, it's not. Head. You always bring up bad <laughs> Carl Whitaker quotes when you shut me down. Well, th- I mean, this to me ties it all together, right? Because you started this like saying, hey, I came up with this idea for this book sending an email to a client where I am self-disclosing and mm-hmm. becoming a person to this client yeah. more than I've ever done before. And like, I, I want people to buy your book. It's a great book. Um, but I'm curious, how has your focus as a therapist changed with this dynamic where it's like, Hey, I write this email. Mm-hmm. I realize I need to be more of a person and yeah. share more of myself with other people to help them heal. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious to what degree in the last, you said two years, right? Yeah. How have things changed for you as a therapist working with people in this way now that you've written out like some of your own pain and isolation and and difficulties? Mm. It's changed dramatically. I'm again, I wouldn't quite say in therapy sessions to the extent of what I say in the book, but I am much more willing to just be like honestly a vulnerable person in therapy. 
I realized the more I thought about it, 90% of what I think in a therapy session, I don't say. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, maybe some of that cannot be said and that's okay. Like it's probably not all gold. Fair enough. Sure. Right. But I was just, I became so aware of how much I'm holding back. And uh, that email and her response to that email made me think, what if what I'm holding back is the best stuff? And it has dramatically changed how I approach therapy. I'm, I'm much more willing to be, you know, to an appropriate degree, vulnerable and open and human. And I've seen it make a difference because I, I don't think there's anything, at least in the mental health world, I don't think there's anything worse than feeling like you're alone with what you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the worst. There's nothing quite like that. And if anything I share with someone makes them realize they are not alone, I think that is more valuable than any lifestyle modification or thought stopping. What a, you know, mm-hmm. I, I do love that stuff. I'm not disparaging it. It's just that there are so many people for whom that is inadequate. And that was like, I had tried every therapy technique with this person and it did nothing. And that email changed everything for her. Mm. And I'm like, I bet this would work with more people than just her. Mm. Yeah. That's what it was. That was it. Cool. Share the red pill. Yes. <laughs> Share the red pill. Maybe that'll be the title of my next book. Probably a copyright issue there. <laughs> yeah. You can have it. <laughs> Share the Rojo pill. <laughs> there Rojo. we go. Is that Spanish? I should know. <laughs> yeah. It's the wish.com version. The of wish. the- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that works. <laughs> Well, that was a that was a fine interruption, Marshall. We'll save my question for part two. Deal. Deal. Scott, thanks so much. Can you can you share how people can get a hold of your book, the audio book, mm-hmm. um, find you on social media? How how do people connect with you? Um, so the book is available paperback and Kindle. Well, and audiobook now. That's so new, I forget to say it. Yeah. Um, you can get it on Amazon if you want paperback or Kindle, the audiobook is available on Amazon, iTunes, or Audible. Cool. And on social media, I'm really only active on Instagram, and it's just at doctor.scott.eilers, E-I-L-E-R-S, at gmail.com. Nope, that's my email address. Leave out the <laughs> gmail.com part. Do you want people to have your email it's address? It's on my website, so okay. it's fine. <laughs> oh, that's my social security number. <laughs> Here's my address. Here's my personal phone cell phone number. So, oh, shoot. <laughs> yeah, leave out the gmail.com. ATM pin. And then that's my Instagram. We will, so. uh, we'll put links in the show notes yeah. and, and all that stuff. We'll be sure to, on our diminutive social media presence, we'll, we'll share it as well. I bet it'll get a little bigger. So, soon what's that cool. i bet it'll get a little bigger soon yeah i hope so yeah we got to do a little work on that um scott's popular though so scott is i'm popular. a link you guys that's awesome <laughs> we love it um yeah this was awesome scott thanks so much Thank we'd you. love to have you back sometime i really appreciate it i'd yeah. love to come back this has been great great regardless we can always consult we can always Just consult yeah, yeah. Yours. Yours. i mean i'm local you guys can like find about. me <laughs> yeah i know i know we don't exist in isolation right oh no all right you want to you want to do your signature sign off be well all right <laughs>